over that whole time. So if you want to look in your bulletin or up on the screen behind me, we're going to read aloud God's Word together again, verses 1 through 5. You ready? 3, 2, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God called the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in February of 2020, there was an article that came out in the New York Times called, here's, You're Not Listening and Here's Why. Um, in it, there's a woman named Kate Murphy who was researching a book that she was going to write on listening, and she found something really profound. Uh, she, she found that with our closest relationships, it's the people that we're the very closest to in life that we tend actually to not listen to very well. We, we actually tend to sort of think we know what they're going to say and fill it in. This is where you finish each other's sentences or finish each other's sandwiches. Remember that? Okay, yeah. All right, so you finish each other's sentences. You say what you think a person is going to say. You, you, you're already ahead of them because you know them. That's really ironic. And she calls this closeness communication bias. And she said, this is really odd because the people that you would say you're closest to, that you listen the best to, actually you often listen the worst to. Now she went on uh, in, in looking at this and she said, this is like when you're driving down the road and you don't even notice where you're going anymore because you're so used to going that way that you sort of just put it on autopilot. And that's what we're doing in our conversations. She also referenced a guy named Nicholas Epley, who's a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago uh, School of Business. And he, he said this. He said, the reason we do this is we, we sort of put things in boxes. Our brain is trying to be a little bit lazy. And so we put things in boxes and we stereotype. We're like, I sort of know what you care about, and therefore I kind of anticipate what you're going to say. So his story of this was buying a birthday present for his wife. He's like, this is a real mess. Because he's like, oh, I know what she really would like. I remember her saying at one time that she would love to swim with the dolphins. And so he gets her this package behind-the-scenes tour at Shedd Aquarium, which is in Chicago, a really famous big aquarium. And he's so excited to give this to her. And she hears about this, and she is not happy. He said uh, she was going to feed the dolphins and get to pet a beluga whale and feed the penguins. And he's like, I just didn't really think about the fact that she was pregnant with morning sickness. So she hears about this gift, and all she can think about is dead fish. And it makes her want to throw up, right? Like, so he's, and this is his thing. He says, I, had, I just didn't stop and think about it. Uh, is this the right gift given where my wife is now in her life? I hadn't been listening very well. Now, what does this have to do with Genesis? I know you're like, I'd love to know. Uh, <laughs> but I think that we have that same closeness communication bias with this book, especially if you've been around the church for a while. I mean, I'm betting that even if you haven't come to church in a long time or maybe never, that's not your first rodeo hearing about Genesis 1. 
Am I right? And we've heard this, many of us, over and over. Maybe you've read this and studied this. But my question is, do we really hear what it says? Do we really hear what this says? I think that many of us have the same kind of closeness communication bias. We sort of fill in what we think it's supposed to say. Now, this may be from a number of reasons. Maybe uh, you were taught growing up, hey, church is not your place for questions. Like, you're not supposed to ask that, don't you know? Or, or maybe you sort of have memorized like, well, this is what this means. You were taught this, and so you don't really listen to the scriptures. But here's my challenge. Man, I'm launching into preaching from Genesis 1 through 11, some of the most well-known passages of Scripture, and we, I'm trying to do a series in this where we listen to it, that's going to be really hard. So my challenge to you is can you hear what it actually says? And maybe also what it doesn't say. So let's go back to this little section we just read and ask some questions. <coughs> questions that maybe you don't think are appropriate for church, but I think it's okay to ask these questions. So um, let's just say this. There's this strange little phrase that's in every day of creation. Do you notice this? And there was evening and there was morning the blank day. Does anybody else think that's weird? I mean, that's not how we talk about days, is it? I mean, don't we say there's morning and then there's evening? There's sun up and then there's sun down. That's, that's a day to us. Even for the Hebrews, they measure days sundown to sundown. So there was evening and morning. Huh. What about this one? Um, so we'll read this next week, but do you notice that there's no sun yet? The sun wasn't created until day four. So sunrise, sunset, that's a day. Huh. Anybody else notice that stuff? Let's, let's, let's pan out to like more of Genesis. Okay, let's, let's ask some other questions. Why does it seem like there are two creation accounts? There's Genesis 1, and then you like hit reset, and there's Genesis 2. Anybody notice this before? Or what about this one? Where did that snake come from? And why is nobody surprised he's talking? I mean, am I the only crazy one here? Or is it, nobody's like, wait, that's a talking snake. Um, after they get kicked out of the garden, where do the other people come from? Uh, what about this? What about other creation stories or flood narratives? Some of y'all have heard that there's some. What do we do with those? What about dinosaur bones? I mean, if you've had a four-year-old and you've read the dinosaur books, you've already been asked that one. Like, what do we do with those? Carbon dating? Maybe the four-year-old's not asking that one. Uh, evolution, right? Like, see, this is the closeness communication bias. And I want us to go back and say, well, what does this really say and why? You know, I think that we think we know but one thing I think is manifestly clear about this is maybe this text isn't answering the questions that we're asking of it. But, you know, maybe it's not interested in the things that you and I are interested in from this book. Like, we want to know the answer to how exactly. <laughs> like, how exactly did this happen? What do, you, what do you say? How exactly did that go down? You know, um, but maybe the whole point is not to give us a lab report. 
on the creation of the world. Maybe there's something else here. I, you know, and let me just hear this. Okay, let me tell you this. I'm not saying to you that you shouldn't believe in six 24-hour literal days. I, I, I'm not trying to um, mess with you with that or, or debunk that, but I'm just saying maybe there's something more important to the people who first wrote this down and the people who first received this than the things that you want from your Genesis. I mean, how do you want your Genesis served up? Over easy, scrambled? You know, like we come to it wanting things from it that maybe are not what's important to how it was given or what it was for. So here's my big idea. Genesis isn't telling us how exactly so much. Genesis 1 especially, except it's really telling us who and why and so what. Now, before you like send me that email, uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm squarely within my PCA tradition. In the PCA, there are four acceptable views of Genesis chapter 1. A literal six 24-hour day, a day um, age, and an analogical reading, and then a uh, literary structure. And I'm going to be teaching a lot from a literary structure perspective because I want us to hear the text. I want us to really study that and know that. So, but don't write me an email. You can, <laughs> we can talk later after you've listened more. But um, I'm not trying to debunk any of those things. I just want us to listen. I want us to really hear. So here's where we're going to start. Uh, this question, what? So what is Genesis 1? And I know you think the answer is the Bible, but let me, let me back up and ask you another question. What is it? Like, what is it that we're actually looking at? And the answer to that is that this is a poem. This is a poem. And a, a poem, uh, you know, you can, if you know nothing about Hebrew poetry, you can tell that this is a poem. It's got some of the things that even our poetry has. It has a structure. It's got kind of stanzas and choruses. It repeats. It's got a structure to it. And I know some of y'all are like, I graduated from high school and I never want to think about poetry again. Anybody there? Right? Okay, I saw some hands. I know. But look, poetry is so important because it doesn't communicate in the way that prose does. It's different. It communicates something different. Now, it doesn't mean that a poem is not true, but it says things differently. And it can say true things differently. So let me give you an example about this. Uh, if I say to my wife, I love you, babe, is that a true statement? Yeah, I hope you would think that I love my wife. God, come on, right? Yes, that is a true statement. But there's a difference between saying, I love you, babe, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. This is how she says, I love you, babe, okay, in poetry. She says, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. I love thee with the breath and smiles and tears of all my life. Now, is that the same? Right? Yeah. Is that the same as I love you, babe? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, both are true. It's just said really differently. Right? It's said very differently. And, and look, this most famous of poems if you miss the fact that it's a poem, you miss the fact that there's a lot being communicated here that you may not be paying attention to. This is not a lab report. And it's saying true things in a different way. So, second, I want you to think about how this was passed down. How was this passed down? The first five books of the Bible, let's just see how much you know. The first five books of the Bible are called the books of who? 
Oh, yeah. Man, we got some people in here know their stuff. The books of Moses. That is because traditionally, throughout the centuries, we believe Moses wrote down for the people coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land, the five books that are known as the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Now, this material that we're reading right here, Genesis 1 through 11, is called the prehistory. This and the book of, of uh, Job are some of the oldest passages in all the Bible, and they're mostly, sadly, I hate to tell this, some of y'all will raise your hand, poetry. And I want you to think about that, because poetry, it has structure to it and repetition and things that help people memorize this. That it helped them to be able to memorize it and therefore pass it on, pass it down. So, we, you know, we hear all this like, and God said, and it was the first day, and it was good. Those things are like, little choruses that help people remember this and pass it down. Just like your head is filled with all kinds of dumb songs that you have all the lyrics memorized to that you really don't, aren't even aware of. So something comes on, like your Spotify, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, you can sing along, all the words, right? You, did you ever sit down and study that? Hmm, I need to memorize this. No, you never did that because it's poetry. You may not have thought about it as poetry, but it's poetry. It helps you remember it. And that's what's being done here. So let me take this poem, and I want to just peel back a couple layers with you this morning. I want to ask, okay, so what is this trying to tell us? And first thing it's trying to tell us is who. Who? Who is this God? And let's go back to the text and ask. What do we see in this passage? Who's this God? God is, first, it's God is one. This is only one God. This isn't a pantheon of gods. If you, if you grew up with, knowing anything about Greek mythology or Roman mythology, or Norse mythology. They have like a whole bunch of gods. This is one God. This is a God who's a spirit. So we read, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. God doesn't have a body like you do. God isn't a supersized version of a human. God is a spirit. Third, God is an artist. And that word bara here for creator, that's used throughout this. And it's just this picture of God's like, infinite creativity and imagination. God comes up with stuff that we are still discovering that lives at the bottom of the ocean that nobody's seen. Why is it there? I don't know, for God's enjoyment. He's like, I just love this weird blind fish thing, right? You know, like God is incredibly creative. God creates with, his, with a word, right? He's not making a snowman like you are. God creates with the word, and then he does this thing. God evaluates. God renders a judgment. He's like, how, what, how, how is this? Oh, this is good. He evaluates. Now, why does that matter? Because this poem wasn't dropped down. I know you know this, but I'm just going to remind you this. This Genesis 1 wasn't dropped down from heaven in shrink wrap for you in English. It was given to a particular people in a particular time and place surrounded by all kinds of other nations with different storylines of how the world works. And it's trying to tell a story about who this God is compared to everybody else. It's not just a lab report. So let me, let me kind of give you some context. Here are three creation stories that are from nations around Israel, around the Hebrew people that they would have known. First one, Enuma Elish. You don't even have to spell it. Okay, I'll just like Enuma Elish is um, a Babylonian creation myth from about the time of like 2700 B.C. Now, this is interesting. 
Who else in the Bible was from Babylon? This is a little hard, okay? Babylon is also known as Chaldea in the Bible. So there's somebody, major somebody from Genesis, who's from blank of the Chaldeans. Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. So this is the story that little, little boy Abraham grew up hearing around the fire, very likely, before God called him. And it's Enuma Elish. It was found uh, on seven tablets, 1849, in the ruins of Ashurbanipal's library in ancient Nineveh. And it goes like this. The gods are birthed out of swirling waters, which divide into two kinds of water, fresh water that becomes Apsu, and the salt water, which becomes the goddess Tiamat. And from those two come all their children, the lesser gods. And of course, uh, the noise of all their kids annoys their dad, god Apsu. So he plans to kill off the younger gods. The younger gods are warned of this, and they strike back by killing their go- their, the god Apsu. Tiamat, mom, is enraged by the death of her husband, and it leads to a battle between Tiamat and Marduk. Marduk is the head of all the other lesser gods. Marduk wins and creates mankind or humankind from the blood of the god Quingu, who is blamed for the conflict and therefore executed. That's what Abraham grew up with. People of Israel, they knew this one. Okay? Second, Egyptian creation stories. And these are mostly from the from uh, insides of the pyramids from the oldest period of the kings, the old kingdom. 2780 to 2250 B.C. So kind of all the creation stories of the Egyptians all center around each town. Each big city has its own local god who's in charge of creating all things. And so everyone, it's sort of the same story, but it's named different things in different places. In Memphis, not Tennessee, but Memphis in Egypt, right? Their god was P-T-A-H, Ptah, in Heropolis, Hermopolis, it's Agdoad. In Heliopolis, it's Atum. So all of them have kind of the same storyline. The storyline goes like this, and I'm going to be PG with this. Um, The gods create humankind and all things out of a sex act. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that because of little ears. But like, that's that's sort of where the the genesis of all things comes from in, in Egypt. Now, would the Hebrew people have known this? Remember what we just said. Genesis, one of the five books of who? Moses. And Moses was the guy who went to the Egyptians after 400 years of Israelite slavery and calls the people of God out. And they're delivered with all these signs and wonders, right? Cross the the Dead Sea and they they, they come to Mount Sinai. Would they have known, do you think, the Egyptian creation story? You betcha. You betcha they would have known that. I mean... This is where they were living. Uh, third, the one from Sumeria, the Atrahasis epic. This is from about 17th century BC. Atrahasis is the primary character. That's where the name comes from. And the tablets of this were found in cuneiform script. And, but what's interesting about this is they've been discovered all over the place. It started in Babylon, but these have been found all over actually what was Canaan later. So a lot of modern Palestine, Syria, um, so it tells the story of the Sumerian gods. There were seven great Anuna gods and the lesser Igigi gods, which is my favorite word to say in the sermon this morning, Igigi. Um, and the lesser gods were so burdened with work that they decided to rebel. Uh, they, they do this 
before the battle, they have a perfect solution that's proposed. Let's create humankind to do all the oppressive work. And so they slaughter the god Awuilu and mix his blood and flesh with clay, and that's how people are made, to do oppressive work. Now again, would they have known this? Remember, they're leaving Egypt. They're going to the promised land. This would have been the stories that are told in Canaan about how the world came to be. So again, does it matter that you know this? Um, maybe, maybe not. If you go to any English, or, or, sorry, any religious studies program in any liberal arts college in the country, they're going to tell you these stories. And, and a lot of kids grow up in the church and they're really surprised. They go and they take their first religion class and they're like, oh no, this means the Bible's not true. Now that's not really the case. Because what I want to really point out to you is how different the stories that they were hearing are from what you just read. And this is the main point. I mean, this is what a lot of be is being communicated in Genesis 1. It's like, no, this God's different. This God is not like any other God you know. I mean, listen to some of the things we heard. You know, this God isn't a group of gods. This is one God. This God isn't a supersized human, you know, who's just has body like you and does things like you. No, this is a God's a spirit. Uh, this isn't a God who's fighting and doing sex acts. This is a God who speaks, who creates with infinite beauty, and then pronounces it good. This God, something's really different here. And I want to propose to you, like, this is the main point. I don't know how you want your Genesis. You probably want a lab report. But what you're getting instead is like, no, no, make sure you understand who this God is. This God is different from every other God. Second thing it tells us is why. Why God made the world. I want you to notice there's all these repetitions in Genesis 1. And in fact, there's all these repetitions of numbers. Numbers in Hebrew are really, really important. Uh, that was one of the things that they did, just like when we repeat things, we don't always keep track of how many times we repeat some things, but the Hebrew people did. This is a major part of their poetry. So look at this. It's entirely purposeful. There are lots of sevens and patterns of seven in this passage. Seven days. Seven times it said this was good. Seven times it says there was evening, there was morning. Seven times, and it was so. Seven times it says, and God said. The first sentence of Genesis 1, chapter 1, is seven words long. The second verse, verse 14, is 14. I mean, sorry, verse 2 is 14 words long, seven times two. The, the seventh verse of this passage is five times seven, 35 words long. The word earth occurs 21, seven times three times. The word for God is used 35, seven times five times. Now, and why? Why is seven so stinking important to the Hebrew people? Well, it tells us because the the poem is all about the end of the poem. What's the end of the poem? God creates the Sabbath day and he rests. So listen, Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work he'd done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. There's nothing like this in the ancient Near East. I mean, nobody else is talking about a story about a God who rests. That never comes up. Uh, fighting, yes. Sex acts, yes. Jealousy and pettiness and all kinds of stupid, 
Yes. But a God who rests, this is something absolutely unique. And, and then a God who creates the world, blesses it, and then sits back and enjoys what he has made. One more thing. So the Hebrew Midrash, which is, I'll teach you that word. I'm going to say it a bunch of times over the course of this series. Midrash are the ancient writings of like rabbis throughout the centuries as they studied these passages. It'd be like commentaries by modern people, right? So the ancient Midrash points out over and over again what a weird thing the bookends of this passage are. That the bookends of Genesis 1, this little poem, it starts with nothing, right? There's nothing. God creates Something out of nothing, that's the whole point. And it ends with nothing. God does nothing. It begins with nothing, it ends with nothing. The whole point there is that there's something about this nothing that really, really matters, that God wants to uh, point us toward. Now, I love it. You know when you're driving to the beach during the summertime and you're getting to the beach, you roll down your car windows even though it's hot. Why do you roll down your car windows? Right, you smell the salt. You're like... "Mm." Oh, we're getting close. I feel that right now. Getting through Genesis 1, we're like, I can, like, I can smell it. Can you smell it? We're getting close. What's this about? Right? Because Genesis 1 isn't answering questions about dinosaurs for us. Carbon dating or evolution. And we could talk about that. I'm happy to talk about that. Not this Sunday. Next Sunday, okay? But this is bound up in all of this pointing to 7. All this pointing to the this rest, this idea of God who gives rest. And here's the idea. God made this world and rested. God made this world good for rest. God made this world good for rest with you. He wants to rest with his people. And that is a profound idea. And that's maybe not, again, what you want, but this is what the Hebrew people needed. They needed to be able to answer the question, well, who am I? I'm guessing in this church, there's probably a couple people who have seen Moana before. You might have seen Moana, you know, with the talking crab, Jermaine Clement. And uh, what, the, the score is by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And then, of course, Maui is played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Right, right. So you can go watch this. But do you realize that's a creation story? It's an interesting story. It's a story like the little girl Moana. And she grows up on a like, Polynesian island. She's the daughter of the chief. And she grows up with everything sort of being focused on how the island gives us what we need, right? You know the song, Where Are You? Come on, y'all can even sing this. Where are you? Are. Right, right? You know, it's like, right? So like the island gives us everything we need. That's like the whole thing. And the focus of everybody is that the island is awesome. And they look inland. Now, Moana's weird because she is just for some reason drawn to the ocean. She's drawn to the sea. She's like, that's where I want to be. And she keeps going down to the waves and her family's like, nope, come back over here. And so she grows up doing her junior chief responsibilities. Like she, she learns to help. She helps a guy get a tattoo and she teaches a girl to hula dance and she fixes a roof. But the reality is that she's really focused on the sea and everybody else is focused inland. Now, the problem of the movie is that right, there's some kind of rot that begins to happen on the island. There's something that threatens the life of the island, and she goes in search for a clue for what to do, and she stumbles upon a cave filled with boats. 
And in that, she discovers, wait, our people were not always inland-focused. They were voyagers. They were seafarers. This is not the way we're... This is not actually who we are and what we're supposed to be about. See, the whole point of the, the story of Moana is like understanding your roots helps you understand who you really are. And traditionally, this account of Genesis 1, again, given to Hebrew people who are coming out of 400 years of bondage. They've come up in Egypt being told, your entire purpose for existence is making bricks. Your entire purpose in existence is working to death. There's no rest for you. There's no break for you. You've got to do everything. There's no stopping. There's no ceasing. You collapse into bed at night, you get up and do the same thing tomorrow. That was their entire 400-year existence in Egypt. And so when Moses shows up, they don't remember who they are. They, they, he comes up and says, this God, Yahweh, is going to rescue you. And they're like, we don't know who you're talking about. Who is this God? They've forgotten what they exist for. See, life in Egypt had told them, follow the, the Pharaoh line for your life. This is what you're for. I mean, it's very, very similar to the Atrahasis epic, isn't it? Blood of the gods mixed with the clay to create people whose entire purpose in living is just work, toiling, slaving away. But God tells a different story, that their day begins with resting. I mean, did you hear that again? There was evening, there was morning. It emphasizes the part of our day that we spend in bed. Every part of this emphasizes the part of the day that we spend in bed. There was evening, there was morning. It emphasizes rest in every day. It says, this is who you are. You are defined by what God is like and what God says. God, who creates things by the word of his mouth and evaluates them. That you are not valued because of your, because of your ability to get stuff done. You are the crowning achievement of creation. People made in his image. This is a song. I mean, like, just really listen to this. This was a song Hebrew people sang to their babies. And they told their kids... And they told it to them every night before they went to bed, and every seventh day, they especially emphasized it. They said, this is who we are. This is what it is to be God's people. We're not defined by what we do. We're defined by who God says we are. And we're invited to live the story that Elohim is writing in the universe, not the false stories of Sumeria and Egypt and Mesopotamia and Chaldeans, we're, we're invited to live a different storyline because of this. Now, do you think this could apply to us today? Like, we're not what we do? Hmm, I don't know if that applies to us, does it? Yeah, I can't think of a more appropriate application to you or to me. Right? We are people who need to hear, you are not your work. You're not your job. You're not your ability to get things done. I mean, work is good, but God made you for work and rest. You know, you are not a human doing. You're a human being. You're not a work machine. You're not defined by how you make money. You're not defined by whether the world values the things that you're passionate about enough to assign money to those. God says who you are. And you're not a perpetual motion machine. Just like your cell phone, you have an off button. And you can turn it off. 
See, God is inviting you to turn off the rest, to, to have a, a Sabbath day. And there's an application to this, of course, for how you live your existence. Like, are you going to be a person who takes God up on his offer for rest every week? Will you observe the Sabbath? We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But it's even a reminder of like, this is what we're made for, is an ultimate resting with God. See, like, I think that like Moana's people, the church of Jesus, we've forgotten what we're here for. Gaze has turned inland, and we rediscover the ships, and we're like, oh, I wonder what those are for. See, I think we've lived without a lot of the beauty and power of this passage for us. We lose the, the story because, of course, Genesis 1 is in the beginning, and it's echoed by a later in the beginning story that John tells. John 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. See, what's great about what we're reading here is that this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning. So we're made for rest, and rest is great. I mean, Sabbath rest, such a gift. But we're made for even more than that. And what we're invited to read as we start this book is to trace a storyline that goes all the way through that says, you're made for a rest that's not just ceasing to labor, but to be with God and enjoy Him. He's designed you for this. He's made you for this. And we can rest, therefore, in the finished work of His Son, Jesus, the crowning achievement of His creation, His Son come in His own image and the image of people and rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. That there's a cross and there's a resurrection. And this storyline is going all the way to a final resting place where we will enjoy Him forever in a place with no more tears. Like This is the grand story. Don't miss the story because you're looking for a lab report. See, here's, here's the invitation that we could become children of God. I mean, think of how important it is that we would learn to listen to the real story, the bigger story, and trust that story. See, without that, you live in a world that feels chaotic and broken all the time. You're always looking over your shoulder because you think the shoe's going to drop. You're always living out of, I've got to hold it all together. It's up to me to make everything work. You can't do that. You're not designed for that. And if you, you live out of those other false storylines, you're going to approach life with a scarcity mindset instead of this story, which is an abundance mindset. A God who makes all things, who makes them good, and invites you into enjoyment of them. See, if I know a God who rests, I can trust the story and rest. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, Father, to really listen to what you're saying to us, to really listen to what's offered to us in your word. We pray, Father, we would more and more be people who hear your, your call, understand the story, and live out of the storyline that you're making in history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.